Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, it's been quite a week at the U.S. Supreme Court, where despite the conservative majority, the high court ruled 6-3 to three in favor of both LGBT rights and DACA recipients, or DREAMers. We have about 200,000 of those here in California. That's right. And it was a case brought by not only our state, but the UC Board of Regents. These were not necessarily the decisions we were expecting from the court this week. Um, And we're thrilled in a few minutes to have as a guest today a man who can speak to the many angles of these decisions. Former Assembly Speaker, now chair of the UC Board of Regents, John Perez. We will get to uh, Speaker slash Chair Perez in just a minute, Scott. But Let's talk about the we, we saw finally a statewide mask order in California just today um, yes. by the Department of Public Health via Gavin Newsom, our governor. Um, and this comes on the heels of a lot of really protests across the nation around masks, people burning them, um, questions about. I don't know, religious freedom and and civil liberties. And we saw like a health officer in Orange County resign over her ordinance or her her mandate. Um, Yeah, we had like, I think, six or seven health officers who have resigned, including that one. Uh, They're just they're getting some of them death threats. or One of them did. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, let's just be clear. I mean, it's I think, coming from the lack of clear information and perhaps the mixed messages from the Trump administration. The president clearly doesn't think uh, people should wear masks, and uh, he never wears one really in public. Uh, Neither does the vice president. And so I think folks who support him, uh, including those who are planning to go to his big rally in Tulsa on Saturday, um, just feel that it has become, in, in their phrasing, part of this fake fraud pandemic. I mean, it's something that scientists just don't really know how to respond to because it's irrational. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting to me that the governor stepped in now. I mean, we did have, um, I think back in mid-May, Eric Garcetti, mayor of L.A., announced mandatory face coverings there. Um, They are mandatory in many Bay Area counties, including where you and I are, Scott, in San Francisco. But to your point, I mean, yeah, I, I think we've seen, like, a lot of health directors get death threats, and it is sort of crazy given... The science really shows that this does help. Um, But why do you think he stepped in now? I mean, is this an attempt to take pressures off of counties, do you think? Well, you know, he clearly has backed away from uh, telling counties what to do. He's given counties a lot of leeway, uh, which I think is probably smart because, and we'll see if this happens with this particular mask order, they were kind of doing what they wanted to do anyway. And rather, I think, be seen as just having everybody defy your order. 
he has given more control to the counties to uh, reopen, uh, assuming that they meet certain guidelines. You know, but I think, do think there's a big question as to the extent to which people in California are going to follow this health order. Because, I mean, even in San Francisco, which I have to say, a city that's known for questioning authority, a lot of people have been pretty good, you yeah. know, in terms of I've social been, distancing. Yeah. Uh, you get kind of dirty looks. If Like, I ride my bike. I do not wear a mask, which is not required. But sometimes you get, you know, you get that look like, why aren't you wearing a mask? But it'll be interesting to see, like, what is going to happen in places like, well, you know, the Central Valley and the upper northeastern part of California, where they weren't really so thrilled about these stay-at-home orders to begin with. Yeah, I don't even know if you have to go that far, right? I mean, pictures we've seen out of a lot of places. (laughs) I I mean, you know, I think, Scott, this really speaks to the broader politicization of this pandemic. Um, I just finished this big piece with uh, Reveal at the Center for Investigative Reporting. I teamed up with a couple of Reveal reporters and um, a reporter in South Florida, and we kind of compared how things went here and there in the early days of the pandemic. And it is so fascinating, I mean, to compare someone like Ron DeSantis, a Trump accolade, the governor of Florida. Florida to Gavin Newsom um, and, and and almost this reversal of roles that we've seen with, um, you know, there's always this talk about like states rights versus the federal, you know, federalist things. And and in and in Florida, you saw DeSantis sort of put more onus on counties, even after there was sort of a push for bigger shutdowns um, and their numbers, we should say, are going up significantly. Yeah. They just recorded the biggest number in one day. Yeah. Of and of course, they're, tests. they're also welcoming the Republican convention in Jacksonville and and by the way, the name of the uh, series or the story is Divided States of Pandemic, uh, and I highly recommend it. You can find it on KQED's website and on Reveal. You know, one of the things that I found so interesting about that, Marisa, is, you know, listening to, like, the health officer from San Mateo County, who really hasn't been in the news much, mm-hmm. um, saying we didn't know if people would follow these orders. I mean, they were out way out in front, in front of the governor here in California, and they just had run out of things to do in order to try to stem the uh, spread of the virus, and they just did not know how was how was that order going to be received. Yeah, I mean, he. I, I think um, you hear the emotion in their voices because these very sort of you know, behind the scenes, not limelight seeking health officers really did make this jump that I think you could say led to shut down orders across the nation. I mean, we were the first place to do so. And um, I think the governor took a page from them um, at the behest of mayors like Garcetti and San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, who I think were looking at that and going, "Uh, we would rather if this was statewide, (laughs) you know, so I do think the governor has been getting pressure on both ends. Um, And I think we're going to have to see whether the fact that you have such sort of now disparate rules across the state is going to impact caseloads and hospital hospitalizations and all of those things um, because it, it, it does really feel as the head of uh, the state health and human services told me that we are in the bottom of the second inning in this pandemic. It is not over. It is very early. Yeah. And let's remember that flattening the curve never meant stopping the spread. It meant just exactly that, flattening it out so there weren't as many at any given time. So people are going to get sick. I don't think there's any question about that. They're just trying to do it in a way that is more manageable for the, you know, by the hospitals. All right. We are going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Um, and we will be joined by former Assembly Speaker, now Chair of the UC Board of Regents, John Perez. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are joined by John Perez, former Speaker of the State Assembly and Chair of the UC Board of Regents, which scored a huge victory today when the Supreme Court ruled in its favor in the DACA or Dreamers case. Uh, Speaker Perez, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you both. We are super happy to have you. Um, and I got to say, I mean, is this what was your reaction this morning? I, I, I can't imagine this is necessarily what the UC community thought might come out of this conservative majority court. So I'll tell you, I was elated. This the second time this week that as I was getting up and getting ready in the morning, I had the breaking news about the Supreme Court making decisions that, quite frankly, I was worried they wouldn't make. One slight uh, correction in the lead-in, you said both decisions were 6-3. The DACA mm. case was a 5-4 decision, right, a, yeah. a narrower decision by the court. But that said, a huge victory uh, that we're elated to see. And this has a real direct impact on over 600,000 DACA recipients who, 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 who've been able to extend during our litigation, uh, thousands of students at the UC, and really uh, uh, sends a very strong message about the rule of law and the importance of rulemaking uh, as they uh, rejected the Trump's, Trump administration's capricious efforts to undo DACA. Well, and this was really personal for UC President Janet Napolitano. I mean, she was the Homeland Security Chief when this policy was implemented by the Obama administration. Of course, the regents brought this case. I'm just wondering, you know, did you talk to her? Have you talked to her today since this decision came down? She must be, like, super excited, I would think. Well, so I talked to her uh, many times leading into this. I talked to her today uh, a couple of times, and we actually did a joint press conference uh, earlier today, uh, really expressing the UC's uh, happiness with this decision, but also a reality that there's a whole lot of work that still needs to be done. We have more non-DACA undocumented students than we do have DACA students hmm. because the period of time where they haven't accepted uh, new to DACA applicants. And, uh, you know, we think this really sets us up in the next uh, four years for having to have a really important conversation about comprehensive immigration reform so that people aren't waiting day to day, month to month, uh, based on uh, the existence of a program like DACA. 
I mean, you, you know, the UC regions choosing to get involved is not unprecedented and you guys are often involved in litigation, but I'm curious um, about what conversations have been had by the board over the years about this case and, and sort of why the UC felt like it needed to, to put itself in this. Because, you know, there were attorneys general, including our own across the nation, who were challenging this case as well. There was a lot of people who I think would have taken up the mantle. Yeah. So, look, I think the university has an important role in this discussion. We were the first university to, 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 to go out and sue the federal government. It was September of 2017 when we really led the charge and other universities have followed uh, in saying that we have an interest in protecting the well-being of our students and that as a public university, we have an obligation to serve all of our students. I mean, I remember 30-some years ago when I was a student at Berkeley uh, and the law changed with respect to in-state versus out-of-state tuition and where several of us as students organized and said we would push back. One of the people in the room that day was a guy named Marco Fireball, who would go on to write AB 540, the first legislation in the country uh, to protect undocumented students paying in-state tuition. When I was in the legislature, we passed the California Dream Act. Uh, Both of those were important steps that led to the possibility of DACA being established. And uh, UC has to be front and center in these conversations. We're proud to play that, 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 that role. And in fact, we're the lead plaintiff in the main case. So it's University of California and the Department of Homeland Security as the, as the two parties in the case. Um, I was in that courtroom uh, and could feel the energy and the passion of our students and others who were impacted by what the court uh, was hearing in oral arguments last November. So this, this was a, as you know... Excuse me, sorry. As you know, it was a very you know narrow decision. It wasn't really is DACA right? Is it good policy? Is it bad policy? It was that the Trump administration went about canceling it in the wrong way. So as you said, it's far from resolved. But I'm wondering, because it wasn't at all clear how this would come down. It was a five to four decision, the chief justice siding with the four liberals. If it had gone the other way, did the university have any fallback plans? We had, we had a lot of plans that we were working on to figure out ways in which we can continue to serve our students. Obviously, in California, DACA recipients at the university are in a better situation than DACA recipients in other parts of the country. Uh, And look, the fact that we had this ruling is huge, but it doesn't mean that the work is done. As I said, we still have more non-DACA undocumented students than DACA undocumented students. So we really do need to press forward uh, for comprehensive immigration reform to take care of the status of, of, of similarly situated folks as well. Well, and um, as you know, right. none of us, none of us were super optimistic that today would come out the way it did. Uh, I was elated when I got up this morning. Um, and, and I think it was 5-4. You know, it, it was on rulemaking, which is why I said the rule of law matters. How how we make laws, how we make rules matters. And the court stood up for that principle today. So you're 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 a politician. You're a politics guy. We got to talk about the politics of all of this. Um, this is an issue where the president has been kind of ambivalent over time. Sometimes he supports the Dreamers. Sometimes you know he wants them all deported. It's very <laughs> clear. Um, he seemed to react in anger today on Twitter and and called for his reelection in light of the Supreme Court decision. How do you view this in terms of November and and the president? Do you think this is a win or a loss for him? Well, I, look, I think this is a win for justice. 
um, which unfortunately more often than not means it's a loss for the president of the United States. Um, if you look at, for example, SCOTUS blog, and as they do the, the, the analysis of this, they cite, and this is SCOTUS blog's numbers, not mine, that 87% of the public supported uh, DREAMers, right? January 2018 mm -hmm. indicated 87% of those surveyed believe that DACA recipients should be allowed to stay in the country. Including like 70% of Republicans, I think. It was really popular yeah. among Republicans. Right. So this, is, this, is, this should not be a divisive question. This should be a unifying question. Well, I want to ask about the other big decision this week uh, on Scott, Monday. Scott, Sorry? Scott, before, before you do, can I just make one other small point? Yeah, please. Yeah. Because in addition to the, to the Roberts uh, decision, there was a Sotomayor concurring opinion. And there's some interesting stuff to look at there because they differ on the question of, uh, of equal protection. And I think Sotomayor uh, really uh, looks at some of the arguments that the university made that, in fact, uh, uh, there, there were equal protection issues that should have been taken into account. And so I think for legal scholars, they should go and look at the Sotomayor concurrence as well. Yeah. Well, that other big decision, Monday's six to three decision, uh, saying that the 1964 civil rights law protects transgender and LGBT generally employees from discrimination written by Neil Gorsuch, who was the, of all people, uh, the first of the justices appointed by Donald Trump. Um, what do you make of that decision? It also was a fairly narrow decision. It was really, uh, you know, based on the letter of the law and uh, didn't try to read the minds of lawmakers uh, from the 1960s. But, you know, just in general, in, in terms of what it says about where we are as a country, as a community, what does it tell you? I think it, it tells us that we've made huge progress. I mean, for 20-some years, I worked on employment non-discrimination and, and, quite frankly, worked on trying to find a pathway to trans-inclusive employment non-discrimination. Uh, while I was less surprised about that ruling than I was about the DACA ruling, I was really surprised uh, that, that, that the majority ruled in favor, not just uh, on folks on the basis of sexual orientation, but on gender identity. Mm -hmm. This is a huge generational shift in the way uh, the court has looked at this question. And I think it's really important up till now the majority of states, you could be fired for being gay, lesbian, or bisexual. In a supermajority of the states, you could be fired on the basis of being transgender. So for the courts to say, even on this narrow basis, that folks on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity have those civil rights protections is huge. Obviously, the big gaping hole in that decision is that they still uh, leave religiously affiliated institutions the ability to discriminate. Um, as a Latino man, uh, no religious institution gets to discriminate against me because of their religious beliefs about my race. But as a gay man, they still get to. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a huge shift, uh, but not far enough uh, on the long arc of, 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 of achieving justice. Well, I mean, you just mentioned your identity as a Latino man. You were also the first openly gay speaker in the state assembly. Um, we now have uh, Tony Atkins running the Senate, who was also a speaker later. She's a openly lesbian woman from San Diego. And and I've been struck watching also, to your point about, about trans rights, the marches we've seen and sort of that have been folded into this moment of protest around race um, and police brutality. 
Can you just reflect for a minute on like how far you feel that things have come? Because the fact, I mean, the fact that you were the first openly gay speaker and, and it was only about a decade ago, you know, it, it tells us something about how sort of quickly the culture seems to have shifted. It was a decade ago, and it wasn't just the first in the state. It was the first in the country, right? No other state had elected a gay speaker before me. Uh, three followed in quick succession after me. So we've made huge progress over the last 10 years, but there's, you know, we haven't we haven't achieved equality. Uh, we're, we're, we're still fighting down that course. Look, let me tell you, at the next Regents meeting, we're going to have an argument about our affiliations with religious hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, some of which still discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in the way they deliver health care, some of which discriminate in, in, in other ways in which they deliver health care. And some of which will hide behind uh, the loophole that the Supreme Court just reinforced uh, around employment. So even in the work I do, uh, while we've made progress, you know, there are dangerous challenges still ahead. So um, more quick progress than we've made in generations, uh, but clearly not where we want to get over the long term. Well, and speaking about transformations, uh, the UC Regents uh, this week voted unanimously to endorse a ballot measure that will restore affirmative action at UC and other public schools. Uh, And of course, if you go back to the last time the Regents voted on this issue, 1996, uh, Prop 209 was on the ballot and a majority, like almost all, I think it was 17 out of 18 of the UC Regents were appointed by Republicans, you know, Governor Wilson, Governor Duke Majin. Uh, and now the board is chaired by a gay Latino uh, with, I think, a Latina vice chair. Uh, isn't it just kind of boggle your mind how, how much, <laughs> not just the, the Regents have changed, but the world, right? It, it does. But let me tell you this. Um, that decision this week was unanimous. We have uh, regents who are appointed by Democrat and Republican governors. We have Democratic and Republican regents. So um, if we were a political body, you would say that this was a bipartisan uh, unanimous vote. We're, we're not a political body, body, but, you know, we all come from our own points of view. Uh, I think it really is amazing that uh, we came to that decision by unanimous vote. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are speaking with UC Regents Chair and former State Assembly Speaker John Perez. So, you know, given the fact we, we were just talking about how divisive affirmative action had been, you know, 20 plus years ago. But the truth is, I mean, this bill that the legislature hopes to put on the ballot in November has not been successful in the Democratic-led legislature in the past, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of divisions, especially um, among uh, Asian-American lawmakers. What Can you talk about, like, when you were there, what kind of conversations were happening around affirmative action? And do you just credit these current protests with how quickly this this happened? This has been a move in this direction over multiple years. Mm -hmm. So the last time the legislature looked at this, I think, was in 2013, It was SCA-5 by uh, Dr. Ed Hernandez in the Senate. There were some drafting errors in it Mm -hmm. when it left the Senate. So it passed the Senate by a two-thirds vote, but had some flaws. By the time it came to the Assembly, the the issue got contentious. And uh, uh, we could have passed it as written, uh, but had it not stand up, we could have amended it and passed it back, back to the Senate and not have it passed. Uh, it was a very different environment. It's significantly because 
there were some drafting errors. Mm. Uh, current form, ACA5 by Dr. Shirley Weber, uh, is a much uh, more tightly drawn uh, piece of legislation that just specifically says, put on the ballot a repeal of uh, Prop 209, which is found in uh, Section 31, Article 1 of the state constitution. So it's a very clean set of language that Dr. Weber has has, has has proposed. It passed the Assembly with 60 votes. It just passed the Senate a few minutes ago uh, with 30 votes uh, out of 40. Uh, so these are overwhelming numbers. And it was a broad cross-section. So you look in the, in, the, uh, in the Assembly, not a single Asian Democratic member voted against it. The only no votes were amongst Republican members. So the breakdown was on partisan lines not racial or ethnic lines. Yeah. You know, part of the discussion we're all having right now is uh, about institutional racism. Uh, And, you know, we're having it in newsrooms. We're having it, I'm sure you're having it at campus, at the campus. And there was a lot of criticism, uh, you know, know, with and without affirmative action, that the university didn't do what was necessary to make, you know, black, Latino students, Asian, maybe less so Asian-American students, but, you know, students of color, feel comfortable and give them the things they needed to succeed. To what extent, even if affirmative action is restored, or maybe especially if it's restored, you know, how, how is that going to be different this time? Yeah. Look, no one question is a panacea, right? So Dr. Weber in presenting ACA5 talked about how much of it was informed by her visits to campuses, uh, chairing the Committee on Campus Climate. I founded that committee when I was speaker. And it was because of direct expressions of incredibly racist uh, incidents on different campuses at San Jose State. There was a student who uh, had been harassed, bullied, thrown out of his room, uh, had his items stolen, was placed in a, in a, in a, in a closet with a U-shaped bike lock around his neck oh as a Confederate flag was flying from the window of the dorm room. Jeez. We had at UC San Diego a decade ago a Compton cookout with horrifically racist uh, uh, expressions about African-American students. We've seen this uh, impact other groups of students across the system. So clearly just changing how we evaluate folks for admissions doesn't solve all the societal challenges. But if you create a truly inclusive university, if you have broad representation of folks economically, geographically, racially, amongst the top students that exist in the state, you create a space for discourse. And discourse will help us. We right now are having a national dialogue on race, unlike any dialogue we've had in generations. We as a people will come out better for having the dialogue. We as universities will also come out better for having dialogues. All right. Switching gears, we just have a couple minutes left, but you were speaker during the last economic downturn. You had some very tough budget decisions and and battles um, that you had to wage in the legislature. Um, And I think it's fair to say you and Jerry Brown, our former governor, were were relatively close and worked together on a lot of that stuff. Um, What how do you grade our current governor, Gavin Newsom, who's kind of coming into after a couple of years of (laughs) very good budget news, um, a pretty tough, I think, you know, future looking forward, at least for the next few months. So, look, I I, I did a conversation uh, with KQED right before the governor's May revise, where I said uh, that I expected good things coming out of his May revise but that whatever he would propose would be improved based on interaction with the legislature. 
And I think what we're saying right now is, is exactly that. The governor had a good framework uh, for a budget in these challenging times, and the legislature is helping him perfect it. But it seems like he's, I mean, maybe there's still, I mean, I know they're still talking, but they passed their own budget in order to hit that June 15th uh, constitutional deadline so they could keep getting their paychecks. But you, so you don't see that as a lack of engagement by the governor? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that, right? I mean, look, the governor's been engaged. The legislative leaders have been engaged. Um, and it's, it's, it's a constant effort to perfect that agreement. And so I think in the next couple of days, you'll see refinement of the legislature's uh, uh, budget construct. But the legislature's budget construct was based on the governor's framework. These aren't inherently contentious uh, disagreements. These are refinements on the margins. And quite frankly, it's informed by a discussion we started when I was in the legislature, that you had to make these budgets an expression of our collective values. And so when one person drafts it, a governor, it is a good framework, but it gets perfected by the 120 worldviews of the other legislators, and it gets aligned to all of those uh, things that, 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 that need eyes uh, on the impacts. And so um, I'm getting really good feedback of the conversations between the governor and the legislative leaders, and I think everybody's trying to act as responsibly as they can. But let's be clear, a $54 billion hole that they're working on right now, on top of a very sound structure, is very different than the crisis we were in a decade ago, where you had a $60 billion deficit out of a $120 billion budget uh, and really shaky fundamentals beneath it. The legislature's uh, uh, approach that they just passed actually leaves more in the rainy day fund than I started than the governor's May revise does. These are these are responsible parties trying to make the best of challenging situations. And while there's going to be some healthy tension between the legislature and the governor, uh, it's just that it's healthy and it's constructive. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Speaker Emeritus John Perez, chair of the UC Board of Regents. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>